Tomorrow's Wall Street Titan might be an AI bot. 40% of all open job roles in finance today are for AI-related hires, and almost half of firms cite AI as a way to improve customer experiences. Find out more about the impact of AI on finance later in the podcast. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang, and this is The Circuit. I've been covering this industry for a long time, and there is always some new, new thing that big tech is chasing. First, it was self-driving cars, and then it was the metaverse, and now everyone is all in on AI. Now there's one big tech giant that's made it clear it's not missing out. Microsoft is OpenAI's main commercial partner, trading powerful servers and billions of dollars for access to ChatGPT sparking new life into old products, especially their languishing search engine. So it's as big as the internet. I think it's as big. But winning in AI is a totally different story. I'm about to talk to Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella to find out how he thinks he can do it. We'll talk to OpenAI CEO Sam Altman in a moment. But first, a new AI chatbot is helping Nadella in some surprising ways. Have you been playing around with it a lot? Yeah. Fun stuff, discovery. I am super verbose and polite now in email responses. <laughs> it's watching. The AI it's, is always watching. Is, it was fun. Like the guy who leads our uh, office team, and I was responding to him, and he was like, "What is this, man?" And you were like, sort of so pleasant. <laughs> That's amazing. How about the um, the chat, the Bing chatbot? I mean, what, have you, been, what uh, have you been using it to search for? Oh, you know, you just see enough everything, right? From the ferry schedules to, like, the biggest thing I have found is search. We always used it to learn new things and what have you. But you never stay in the flow because you get distracted by your click and go away. Whereas here you can stay on task mm-hmm. and on one topic and go deep. It's sort of very habit-forming in the sense that once you get used to having chat, even if I'm using it one in it, because there's a lot yep. of times I'm just navigating, using mm-hmm. search as a navigational tool. But once you get used to it, you kind of feel like, oh, i got to have these rails. Right. So once you try it, you're hooked. Yeah. Microsoft has been working on AI for decades. And chatbots actually aren't anything new. But all of a sudden, everyone is salivating. Why do you think the moment for AI is now? AI has been here, in fact, it's mainstream, right? I mean, search is an AI product, even the current generation of search. Every news aggregation, recommendation, and, you know, YouTube or e-commerce or TikTok are all AI products, uh, except they're all, I would say, today's generation of AI is all autopilot. In fact, it's a black box that we just sort of use that is dictating, in fact, how our attention is focused. Whereas going forward, the thing that's most exciting about this generation of AI is perhaps we move from autopilot to copilot, where mm-hmm. we actually prompt it. I think this uh, this shift from autopilot to copilot is actually, yes, the next phase of AI, which, in fact, is perhaps going to put us as humans, you know, more in the center of using AI to our benefit. How transformative a change do you think this will be in how we work? I think that probably the biggest difference maker will be business chat. Because, Mm -hmm. 
if you think about it, the most important database in any company is the database underneath all of your productivity software. Except that data is all siloed today. But now I can query it with Natural. I can say, oh, I'm going to meet this customer. Can you tell me the last time I met them? Can you bring up all the documents that are written up about this customer and summarize it so that I'm current on what I need to be prepped for? How do you make sure it's not Clippy 2.0? That it is helpful, delightful, doesn't want to make me click out ASAP. <laughs> there are two sets of things. One is, you know... You're laughing because... Because look, they're, 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 like, our industry is full of lots of you know examples from Clippy to even like say current generation of these assistants and so on. They all are brittle. I think we are also going to have to learn that ultimately these are tools just like anytime somebody sends me a draft, I review the draft. I just don't accept the draft. Uh, and so that ability to work with this co-pilot, give it feedback, know how to verify it. It's like literally like inspecting somebody's homework, right? Which is, hey, tell me exactly how you did this and so that I can verify. Those are the kinds of things that we learn. You're trying to reinvent search with this AI-powered Bing. And I believe it's been using GPT-4 for a while now. What's worked? What hasn't? One thing that we are learning is the search context, right? So conversational search is a thing. So this grounding of your conversation with search data, I think, is one mode. Mm -hmm. And then there is a completely different mode that we also learned, which is people just want to chat. So we are now getting good at even the product design so that we make that an explicit choice. So for example, when we launched Bing, we didn't have these three modes we now have. How precise do you want it to be or how creative you want to be or you want to be balanced? Uh, that, I think, is one of the biggest learnings. We learned that, oh, wow, people do, in fact, want to engage even in what is chat inside of search in different ways, and we got to put the user control back. How much market share do you think you can really take from Google? Like, what's your <laughs> prediction? Give me a give Look, me in your we are thrilled to be in search. We're a very small player in search, and I look forward to every inch we gain is a big gain. You're coming for search. They're coming for office. They're now putting AI in there, you know, Google Docs and Sheets and Gmail. Are we just going to see you and Sundar trying to one-up each other every week in this race to AI <laughs> Look, greatness? You know, I just want Bard and Bing both to thrive. I just want Google Workspace and Microsoft 365 both to thrive. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the fun part of being in this industry and competing is the innovation. And competition is, the last time I checked, a fantastic thing for users and the industry. And so, yeah, I think you know, Google's going to do, uh, you know, is a very innovative company and, uh, and we have a lot of respect for them. And I expect us to compete in multiple categories. In my decade plus covering Microsoft, I can't remember you releasing this much in quick succession. Why is it all happening so fast? Yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of sometimes it feels it's all happening fast. It's, we, we started working on this you know, a good four years ago, right? I mean, in some sense, if you think about when OpenAI and Microsoft came together and said, hey, this next generation of large language models uh, need new infrastructure, let's build the infrastructure, tune the infrastructure, let's understand even what AI safety and alignment looks like for these, what are the use cases? And this has been four years plus in making. Yeah. So yes, it feels 
that we launched a lot of things just in a hurry this year, but it's been four years in the making, and obviously it's a, it's a great partnership with OpenAI. Microsoft reportedly laid off a team focused on ethical and responsible AI. Meantime, you've got the Center for Humane Technology calling the race to AI a race to recklessness. How do you respond to that? In terms of impact on anybody at Microsoft, this is just the, probably the thing that weighs on me heavily because after all, any restructuring is hard, hard on the people who are most impacted. That said, two things. One is this is no longer a side thing for Microsoft, right? Because in some sense, whether it's design, whether it's alignment, safety, ethics, it's kind of like saying quality, performance, and design, core design. So I can't have now an AI team on the side. It's all being mainstream. And so in some sense, the hard process of companies like ours are going to constantly go through a lot of change. And then I think, if anything, debate, dialogue, and scrutiny on what is the space of innovation? Is it really creating benefits for society? I think are absolutely, in fact, I welcome it, right? I look yeah. at them and say, no one can run faster than the benefits to the broader society and then the norms that we enforce as a democratic society on any technology. And so I feel like we're at the very early stages of it, so I would ask us to be open to it, but at the same time scrutinize it. Uh, and let's have a dialogue on what the benefits are. And in that context, let's also recognize, especially with this AI, well, why would we not asking ourselves, like the AI that's already in our lives, and how, what is it doing? Mm -hmm. It's like we've gone straight to saying, oh, wow, these LLMs have some hallucination. Guess what? <laughs> right. There's a lot of AI that I don't even know what it's doing, mm -hmm. and except I'm happily clicking away <laughs> and accepting the recommendations. Mm -hmm. So why don't we, in fact, educate ourselves to ask all of what AI is doing in our lives and say how to do it safely and in an aligned way? Elon Musk, who co-founded OpenAI and then left, has said it's not what he intended. It is closed-sourced and effectively controlled by Microsoft. How would you respond to that? First of all, OpenAI cares deeply about their mission and doing it in the most safe way and in the most open way. And there's an interesting trade between openness and safety. So that is sort of one of the reasons why they have what they have in terms of their governance architecture. And so therefore, at some level, they have been very, very clear on what principles drive them. Similarly, we have been very, very clear on the principles that drive us around AI safety and responsibility, and we'll stick to them. I have to ask you a question about the economy and whether you're concerned about a prolonged tech bust. I mean, we've seen the collapse of three banks, tighter money, more uncertainty. How are you thinking about this? I think at the highest of levels, I think there was an aberration of maybe a 10-year period of um, low interest rates and everything that came with it, not just in tech, but in the broader economy. And I just think that we're just getting back to normal. Like, mm -hmm. the, at least the thing that perhaps we have to remind ourselves, mostly the world looked like this, which is interest rates were higher than zero. Inflation was perhaps maybe structurally going to be higher, uh, just given everything that's happening with supply chains and the geopolitics. And we all as businesses have to be accountable to how to manage in that environment. And tech is one sector. And so I kind of look at this and say, hey, it's a return to normal as opposed to anything sort of that to be, we need to be worried about as being mm -hmm. prolonged. In fact, this is the long run 
the economies have to sort of be, you know, more real. All right. So this is normal to you. I mean, I think that sometimes we sort of say, you know, the last 10 years can never be sort of the way way forward on and it's good i think it's better to have businesses that are run efficiently that are actually measured on the way both whether it's on the societal impact uh, or on real economic impact in 1995 bill gates sent a memo calling the internet a tidal wave that would change all the rules and was going to be crucial to every part of the business is ai that big yeah, I mean, in fact, I, I sort of say the chat GPT, when it first came out, was like when Mosaic first came out, I think, in 1993 as the first browser. And so, yes, it does feel like, you know, to the Bill memo in 1995, it does feel like that to me. Um, so it's as big as the Internet. I think it's as big. It's just like in all of these things, right, we in the tech industry are, you know, classic experts at overhyping everything. I hope at least that what motivates me is I want to use this technology to truly do what I think at least all of us are in tech for, which is democratizing access to it. So when someone says to me, hey, here is how a farmer in rural India, you know, can use this technology to express a complex thought on how to get a subsidy from a government program and can do that successfully, that gives me a lot of sort of, you know, hope. I think a lot about my kids and how AI will have something that I don't, which is an infinite amount of time to spend with them and how these chatbots are so friendly and how quickly that could turn into an unhealthy relationship or, you know, maybe it's nudging them to make a bad decision. As a parent, does any part of that scare you? So that's kind of one of the reasons why I think this moving from autopilot to this co-pilot hopefully gives us more control, whether it's as parents or more importantly, even as children. Like one of the things that was very cool to see in the launch of GPT-4 was the demo uh, or the launch of Khan Academy stuff. Sal sent me this last night and I was looking at his algebra class. It was so engaging, right? I mean, think about it. Like one of the dreams we've always had is can I have a personalized tutor that is engaging, that is actually trying to teach me? We should, of course, be very, very watchful of what happens. But at the same time, I think this generation of bots and this generation of AI probably just go from engagement to more, uh, giving us more agency to learn. What do you think about GPT-4 and like how big a leap it is? It is. It's pretty non-linear, right? That's the advantage of these models is that they're showing generation to generation that they're getting more efficient at the current yeah. task and they're showing emergent capability. Mm -hmm. Like for example, from GPT-3 to 3.5, it learned to code. Yeah. Um, so similarly now, it's sort of really like, look at its yeah. performance on all those standardized tasks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is pretty stunning reasoning. So the thing that I feel this is the closest thing we have to having a reasoning engine yeah. that all of us can use to better make sense of the world. And so right. you're going back to the kids' part. Like my daughter said this to me the other day, which I think was the most profound, which is she's, it's kind of like having a study buddy and a tutor all at the same time. She was yeah. using Bing Chat. I think she had a PDF open yeah. and she was querying the PDF and it was kind of like, wow, yeah. I'm able to ask questions, which, you know, um, I, it's, it's, it's always yeah. not very, we're not that, like you don't go to your tutorials or whatever right, it is right, that right. you need to go. It's so much easier to have this tool available yeah. to make better sense of the world. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a tool that 
yeah. has its place. And you're just excited, not scared. That's kind of the, the big debate that right now, I am more excited. Like the reason is, even if you narrowly look at it from a technology perspective, yeah. This is more empowering and more understandable than these recommendations on some social media site or what have you, yeah. uh, which are being driven by some other black box engagement algorithm. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm open for pushback and scrutiny and debate on it. Yeah. I don't think this is, we are anywhere close to AGI. Yeah. We are not close to any runaway AI problem. Jailbreaks, yes, right. we can, but there's, you know, we can always learn and put them on safety rails. So I think we overstate the risk are we understating the benefit, yeah. even in relation to current set of technology and its uses and its yeah. harms. That's kind of what I think would be a good one to actually pull out, like, hey, would I rather have this uh, or a recommendation engine that I don't even yeah. know what it's doing? Yeah. We'll continue this conversation after this quick break. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, but what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask about jobs because obviously Microsoft makes software that helps people do their jobs. And I wonder if AI-laden software will put some people out of jobs. Sam Altman has this idea that AI is going to create this kind of utopia and generate wealth that's going to be enough to cut everyone a decent-sized check, but eliminate some jobs. Do you agree with that? You know, look, I mean, this, you know, from Keynes to, I guess, Altman, they've all talked about the two-day work week, and I'm looking forward to it. But the point is, look, the, the lump of labor fallacy has never proven out, right? Which is, in some sense, there is displacement. And in fact, if anything, what we have to do is really do a fantastic job uh, as a society to deal with any displacement, because if one job turns into another job, you have to then skill people on another job. And in fact, in an interesting way, here's one thing, in, even in this Microsoft 365 tool, like there is this power automate tool. Up to now, we've called it the low code, no code tool for doing workflow automation. Interestingly enough, you now can automate workflows just using natural language. Guess what? That means anybody who is in the front lines in healthcare and retail can automate or be part of the IT journey. That to me gives means there are new jobs and better wage support. So I feel, yes, there's going to be some changes in jobs. There's going to be some places where there will be wage pressure. There will be opportunities for increased wages because of increased productivity. We should look at it all. 
and at the same time being very clear-eyed about any displacement risk because that one thing that we've also learned in the last 20 years is that any society that doesn't really pay attention to who are the winners and the losers and to make sure that as a society we are not really you know imbalanced in it in terms of economic opportunity we will be better off at the center of a potentially tectonic shift in job creation is Sam Altman. He's promised that AI will create a kind of utopia when it joins the workforce, while also raising alarm about the dangers, signing his name to statements warning about the risk of extinction from AI. Over the summer, Altman traveled the world to talk about the promise and peril of AI. I caught up with him when he returned to San Francisco backstage at Bloomberg's annual Tech Summit. So. You've been traveling a ton. Yeah. What's the like eat, sleep, meditate, yoga, tech routine? Um, there was like no meditation or yoga on the entire trip and almost no exercise. That was tough. I slept fine, actually. Was the goal more listening or explaining? The goal was more listening. It ended up with more explaining than we expected. We ended up meeting like many, many world leaders and talked about the sort of the need for global regulation. And mm -hmm. that was like more explaining. The listening was super valuable. I came back with like a hundred handwritten pages of notes. I, I heard that you do handwritten I notes. I do handwritten what, notes. What happens to the handwritten notes? But in this case, like I distilled it into like here were the top 50 pieces of like feedback from our users and what we need to go off and do. But there's like a lot of things when you like get people in person, like face to face or over a drink or whatever, where people really will just like say, you know, here is like my very harsh feedback on what you're doing wrong and what I want to be different. You didn't go to China or Russia. I spoke remotely in China, but not Russia. Should we be worried about them? Um, and where they are on AI? Or what they yeah, do with Yeah, I would love it? to know more precisely where they are. That would be helpful. We have, I think, very imperfect information there. So how has ChatGPT changed your own behavior? There's like a lot of like little ways and then kind of like one big thought. The, the little ways are, you know, like on this trip, for example, the translation was like a lifesaver. Um, I also use it. Uh, if I'm trying to like write something, which I write a lot to never publish, just like for my own thinking. And I find that I like write faster and can think more somehow. So it's mm -hmm. like a great unsticking tool. But then the big way is I am, I am, I, I see the path towards like this just being like my super assistant for all of mm. my cognitive work. Super assistant. Yeah. You know, we've talked about relationships with chatbots. Did you see this as something that people could get emotionally attached to? And how do you feel about that? I think language models in general are something that people are getting emotionally attached to. Um, and, you know, I have like a complex set of thoughts about that. I personally find it strange. I don't want it for myself. I have a lot of concerns. I don't want to be like the kind of like people telling other people what they can do with tech. But it seems to me like something we need to be careful with. You've talked about how you are constantly in rooms full of people going, holy Yeah. What was the last holy moment? It was like very interesting to get out of the SF echo chamber, whatever you want to call it, and, and see like the ways in which the holy concerns were the same everywhere, uh, and also the ways they're different. So like everywhere, people are like, the rate of change seems really fast. You know, what is this going to do to the economy, good and bad? There's change, and change brings anxiety for people. There's a lot of anxiety out there. There's a lot of fear. The comparisons to nuclear, the comparisons to bioweapons, are those fair or is that so, over dramatic? So there is a lot of anxiety and fear, but 
I think there's like way more excitement out there. I think like with any very powerful technology, synthetic bio and nuclear, two of those, uh, AI is a third, there are major downsides we have to manage to be able to get the upsides. And with this technology, I expect the upsides to be far greater than anything we have seen. And the potential downsides also like super bad. So we do have to manage through those, but the quality of conversation about how to productively do that has gotten so much better so fast. Like I went into the trip somewhat optimistic and I finished it super optimistic. Yeah. So is your bunker prepped and ready to go for the AI apocalypse? Um, a bunker will not help anyone if there's an AI apocalypse, but I know that like, you know, journalists seem to really love that story. Uh, I do love that story. I, I wouldn't overcorrect on like boyhood survival prep. Uh, it's a Cub Scout, I like this stuff. Yeah. It's not gonna help with AI. There's been this talk about the kill switch, the big red button. I hope it's clear that's a joke. It's clear it's okay. a joke. Could you actually turn it off if you wanted to? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, we could like shut down our data centers or whatever, but I don't think that's what people mean by it. I think what we could do instead um, is all of the best practices we're starting to develop around how to build this safely. The safety tests, external audits, internal external red teams, lots more stuff like the way that it would be turned off in practice is not the dramatic, you know, gigantic switch from the movies that cuts the power, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's that we have developed and are continuing to develop these rigorous safety practices. Um, and that's what the kill switch actually looks like, but it's not as theatric. There is now a new competitive environment. For sure. And OpenAI is clearly the front runner, but who are you looking over your shoulder at? This is like not only a competitive environment, but I think this is probably the most competitive environment in tech right now. So we're sort of like looking at everybody, but I always, you know, given my background in startups, uh, I directionally worry more about the people that we don't even know to look at yet that'll, that could come up with some really new mm. idea we missed. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your relationship with Satya Nadella, how much control they have? You know, I've heard people say, you know, Microsoft's just gonna buy OpenAI, you're just making big tech bigger. Um, company's not for sale. Like, I don't know how to be more clear than that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a great relationship with them. I think it's a, that these like big major partnerships between tech companies usually don't work. This is an example of it working really well. We're like super grateful for it. Have you talked to Elon at all behind the scenes? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. What do you guys talk about? I mean, it's getting heated in the public. It, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we talk about like a super wide variety of mm -hmm important and totally trivial stuff. Why do you think he's so frustrated or kind of, a, I mean, it's almost, there's some attacking going on in a way. Um, you should ask him. I would like to know. I'd like to better understand it. I don't think this is in the top like 100 most important things happening related to AI right now, for what it's worth. Is there any aspect of our lives that you think AI should never touch? My mom always used to say, uh, never say never, never say always. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's like generally good advice. If I made a prediction now, I'm sure it could end up being wrong in some subtle way. I think AI is going to touch most aspects of our lives. And then there will be some parts that stay surprisingly the same. Mm -hmm. But those kind of predictions are like humbling and very easy to get wrong. What's the percentage chance we get to the good future versus the bad? Feature. Very high, but I don't know how to put a precise number on it. You know, when you hear these people say like, my probability of doom is 3% and minus 12, or minus, sometimes it's like minus nine and minus 13, yeah. and they have this huge argument. I'm just not smart enough to get the numbers that yeah. precise. What do you think kids should be studying these days? Resilience, uh, adaptability, a high rate of learning, 
creativity, certainly familiarity with the tools. Mm -hmm. So should kids still be learning how to code? Because I've, I've heard people say, don't need to learn how to code anymore, um, just math, just biology. Well, I'm biased because I like coding, but I think you should learn to code. Uh, I don't write code very much anymore, although I randomly did yesterday. But learning to code was great as a way to learn how to think. And I think coding will still be important in the future. It's just going to change a little bit or a lot. We have a new tool. What are we all going to do when we have nothing to do? I don't think we're ever going to have nothing to do. I think what we have to do may change. You know, like what you and I do for our jobs would not strike people from a few thousand years ago as real work. Um, but we found new things to want and to do and ways to feel useful to other people and get fulfillment and create. And that will never stop. But probably, I hope, you and I look, you know, if we could look at the world a few hundred years in the future, be like, wow, those people have it so good. I can't believe they call this stuff work. It's so trivial. Hmm. So we're not going to be all just laying on the beach eating bonbons. Some of us will, and more power to people who want to do that. <laughs> do you think in your heart of hearts that the world is going to be more fair and more equitable? I do. I do. I think that technology is fundamentally an equalizing force. Um, it needs partnership from society and our institutions to get there. But if we can, like my, like my big picture, highest level, like I'll zoom all the way out view of the next decade, is that the cost of intelligence and the cost of energy come way, way down. Hmm. And if those two things happen, it helps everyone, which is great, but I think it lifts up the floor a lot. So where do you want to take OpenAI next? We want to keep making better and better, uh, more capable models and make them available more widely and less expensive. What about the field of AI in general? There's many people working on this, so yeah. we don't get to take the field anywhere. But we're pretty happy with our contribution. Like, we think we have nudged the field in a way that we're proud of. So we're working on new things, too. What are the new things? They're still in progress. Is there room for startups in this world? Totally. I mean, we were a startup not very yeah. long ago. But you're almost already an incumbent. I, of course. But when we started, like, you could have asked the same question. In fact, people did. In fact, yeah. I myself wondered, like, is it possible to take on Google and DeepMind? Or have they already won? And they clearly haven't. Yeah, like, I think there's a lot of, it's always easy to kind of count yourself out as the startup but startups keep doing their thing. Well, nobody's counting you out. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Circuit. I'm Emily Chang. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Emily Chang TV. You can watch new episodes of The Circuit on Bloomberg Television or on demand by downloading the Bloomberg app to your smart TV. And check out our other Bloomberg podcasts on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartMedia app, or wherever you listen to shows. And let us know what you think by leaving us a review. I'm your host and executive producer. Our senior producer is Lauren Ellis. Our associate producer is Lizzie Phillip. Our editor is Sebastian Escobar. Thanks so much for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.